So uh, this is, uh, we're going to finish this series uh, this weekend. And really what I want to talk about is how will we as a church community, as a faith community, how will we individually impact our world? And more importantly, how will we impact this community? Because this is the one we live in. This is the one where our, you know, the rubber meets the road, our shoulders rub together. This is where we're going to make a difference, right? So I want to talk about that. And, you know, there's a number of uh, theologians and philosophers and people that have said, how should the Christian engage this world? How should we do it? And uh, they've come up with a number of different views. Actually, there was a book written by uh, Richard Niebuhr, uh, and it was called Christ and Culture. And he describes five ways that the church through the centuries has chosen to uh, either how it's to relate to the culture. And so I just want to walk you through those, and then we're going to jump to a passage. We're going to look at the book of Jeremiah for a moment, and then we're going to kind of draw some application out. So that's where we're going. So go ahead and eat that cookie if you'd like. If you want to save it for later for dessert uh, or, you know, whatever, go ahead and do that. But uh, enjoy it. And then my mouth is watering because I want one right now, but I can't eat and talk at the same time. And it's not polite, by the way, for the young people there. All right. All right. Another one. Parents would say, don't talk with your mouth full, right? Okay. See, you're getting all of them. You're getting all of those tonight, you know. So he had the five views, and and basically it was Christ and culture. What do we do with it? The first view he had was Christ against culture. And basically the view was that the culture is fallen, that there's really nothing redeemable about it, and so therefore we should just separate from the culture and create our own Christian communities. And so one of the verses that uh, is used is, Come out from among them and be ye separate. And so many denominations and many fellowships like the Mennonites, the Baptists, Christian Brethren, some Pentecostal groups have, uh, not all, but generally speaking, that would be, you know, who's in that that group. So basically, it's to separate or withdraw from the culture. The second view, he said, is exactly the opposite. It's on the other other end of the continuum, and that is Christ of culture. And essentially what that is, is the accommodation to culture, saying there is a hand of God, there's a finger of God in culture, and what we need to do is find that hand of God and just enjoy it. And the problem with that view is you become so much like the world that it's hard to see any difference uh, between the church and the world. Uh, so in other words, it's affirming uh, that God is found in culture. And uh, those that would fall into this category would be most uh, mainline Protestant churches would fall into this view. Um, They would tend to see the culture and uh, the gospel not being in tremendous amount of conflict. The third view is Christ above culture. Um, and essentially what, is, what this is, is kind of think of it as a supplement. That Christ supplements the culture. That, that the culture is, uh, uh, there is a problem with the culture, but uh, what, what the culture needs is God's special revelation to pump it up and to fix it and to kind of redirect it and to make it better. And so through the Word and through other things like that, uh, Christ can become supreme over culture. And uh, that's Thomas Aquinas would hold that view. 
The third or the uh, the fourth view is that Christ uh, transforming culture. And that's the the point where uh, the gospel is called to transform every part, every sphere, every inch of culture Uh, that it's, uh, you know, we believe that uh, the fall of man corrupted culture and corrupted many things. But since Christ is redeeming all of creation Christians can and should work to transform the culture from top to bottom. Okay. The last view that he had was Christ and culture in paradox. And basically it sees uh, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, in conflict with one another. And basically uh, there's the sacred part and there's the secular part. And they're kind of divided and there's really no interchange between the two of them. They often compete with one another. And uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, Augustine, Luther were, would be representative of that view. So the question is, and maybe the one you're asking is, this is very boring. Some of you are thinking that. And the other others of you who are engaging in, in this up to this point are saying, so which one do we choose? Isn't that the answer, right? Which one is right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah has an interesting take on this. And specifically, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29. Now, Jeremiah says something that's very interesting. Uh, but let me give you a little context of what's going on here. The book of Jeremiah describes life in captivity. Uh, in basically what happened uh, to the nation of Israel is they were taken into captivity. Uh, we read about that Babylonian captivity and we read about a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And boy, he has got a long name. And if you want a nice long name for your your new child or grandchild, Nebuchadnezzar is a good one. So what he did was he beseeched or took over Jerusalem, and it resulted in the destruction of the city in 587 B.C. He destroyed the city walls, he destroyed the temple, and he took many of the people into exile in Babylon. Now we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah, and what Jeremiah does is he describes life before the captivity and life during the captivity. So he describes what's going on during the captivity. If you want to read another book that describes life during captivity, read the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel describes what is it like to live in the city of Babylon as a Jewish young man, young person, as a person, as one of God's people. So we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah, and God instructs Jeremiah... And he instructs those who are taken into captivity into Babylon. And he gives them instructions. He says, here's how you should live in this foreign culture. They, they have taken you. They have, you know, they've destroyed your city and they've dragged you to their city to live. Now, how should you live? You know, that's kind of like living in a world that I don't really feel like I belong in, right? And so this might have some really good application for us. So Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4, this is on page 596 of the chair Bible, and you should have a chair Bible near you if you don't. Uh, 596 uh, in the chair Bible if you don't. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. <clears throat> this is the words uh, that God gave to Jeremiah to tell the people who were in captivity. All right? This is what the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. I don't have time to, to go into it, but last week we talked about this 
this idea that God is sovereign, but we're responsible. And so we know that the King Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for the captivity. But notice what God says here. It says the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. So God's saying the reason you're in Babylon in exile is because of me. I put you there. Now, I used Nebuchadnezzar, but I put you there. So there's that balance between the sovereign and the human. And then notice what he says next. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the false prophets, or excuse me, the prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans. By the way, this might, this next verse might be one that you would underline and really memorize. Because I don't think it's just a promise for God's people back in Babylon. I think it's for God's people all times. For I know the plans I have for you, God says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me and I will find, be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your land. So how were the Jewish people to live in this foreign land? How were they to live? And the answer, uh, the, the application we're looking at is how they lived in this foreign land is how we are to live in what tends to be becoming more of a hostile land towards Christianity, right? The, commu- the culture that we live in is not really, you know, well, we love you Christians and we, you know, we're glad to have you here. Not, not anymore. That's, that the tide has turned, right? So how are we to live in the, in the, this hostile foreign land? How were they to live? Number one, they were not they were not to assimilate and become Babylonians. See, the goal, the reason why Nebuchadnezzar brought the people there is he wanted them to assimilate. He wanted them to become like the Babylonians. He wanted them to take on their religious beliefs, their values, their ethics. And after a few generations, there would be virtually no difference. This is the best way to conquer people, to take away their identity, their ethnic distinction, their religious practices. So essentially, that's what he did. That's what he was trying to do. Now, remember, if you again, if you read the book of Daniel, it's very clear there. The first thing he did is they grabbed Daniel and his friends. And what did they do? They began to educate them in the black magic, in the, the all the education of the Babylonian kingdom. They were to learn that because what he was trying to do is trying to program them to assimilate to that culture. So he, he wanted to get the well-educated, the, the smartest young men and women, 
But essentially, he wanted to bring them into the Babylonian culture so that they would become part of it. Now, even Daniel's name, as you read it, was changed from Daniel, and all his, friend, his other friends' names were changed too. But Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar, and Belshazzar means uh, Baal is my God, or Bel is my God. And essentially, what, it's, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, this is a conversion. We want you to convert over to Babylonian beliefs. That's what we want. But here's the key. And this is a key, this is all through the book of Daniel. You see Daniel not giving not giving an, uh, an inch towards that. He doesn't give any any way at all. He is holding firm to his beliefs and his God. Uh, and that's the key. He did not assimilate. Neither did his friends. His friends went so far that they were thrown into a fiery furnace. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. Now. He says to the Jews in our passage in Jeremiah, he says, build homes and plan to stay, plant gardens and eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so they, they, you may have grandchildren. In other words, he's saying, multiply, don't dwindle away. He's saying, be part of this community, join this community. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, instructed them to increase, not de- decrease, to carry on their own traditions, remember who they are, but also become part of the city, become part of Babylon. You see the balance there? And, and these were the people that took them captive. And he's saying, don't separate yourself, become part of the community, but don't lose your identity. You know, the, the Bible kind of bear, it has a phrase, we say, be in the world and not of the world. And sometimes that gets the idea that we're kind of have our own Christian community here and, and we separate from the culture and, you know, every way we can. And that, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is engage the culture, be part of the culture, but don't lose your identity. Don't forget who you are. Now, the second thing he says is very interesting. He says, don't listen to the false prophets. We say, well, who are the false prophets he's talking about? Well, we don't have time to go there, but if you read through chapter 28, basically you have one of the false prophets. His name is Hananiah. Now, Hananiah basically said this. He was saying to the people, don't worry, this captivity is going to be over in two years. The, the former kings were going to be set back into place. This isn't going to last very long. This isn't, this isn't going to last very long. This is going to be over before you know it. Just hang on. Keep, you know, keep separate. Hang on. Don't, don't put any roots down. You're not going to be here that long. And so, uh, he, you know, basically, Jeremiah says to, to Hananiah in this dialogue, he, in, in all the people are there, he says, I hope and I wish what you're saying is true. But it isn't. It isn't true. In fact, at the, you read, I want to read you these verses. This is the end of verse 28, where Jeremiah goes back to Hananiah, and he says this at the end. He says, Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but the people believe your lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You must die. Your life will end this very year because you have rebelled against the Lord. Two months later, Hananiah died. Now, the point I want you to see here is what Hananiah was saying was he was saying to the people, don't worry, we'll be out of this in no time. And Jeremiah was saying, hey, this is going to last for a while. In fact, if you read the passage we just read, it's going to last 70 years. 
70 years of captivity. Hananiah was saying, don't worry, you, you'll only be here two years tops. And Jeremiah says, no, we're going to be here for 70 years. 70 years of captivity. So that's uh, the second thing. They're not to listen to the false prophets. Oh, by the way, there's false prophets out there today that are telling people, Christians to do all sorts of crazy and screwy things. And the only way you're going to be able to navigate through that is to be a student of the Word of God, to understand what the Word of God says. When somebody says something, whether it's me or anyone else, says something, and you go, you know, I don't think that squares with Scripture, then you ought to go with Scripture. Don't go with me and don't go with someone else who says something really, uh, you know, screwy or or weird. Uh, Because they may sound like they're making sense, but uh, God's Word is always true and it's always right. The third thing he says is they were to work for the peace and prosperity of the city. This is powerful verses here. He says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. In other words, he's saying you're to put roots down. You're to be good citizens in this foreign land. You're to make the city around you a better place to live in. You're to pray for this city. Why? Because when the city prospers, you prosper. When good things happen to the city, good things will happen to you. When you have good government, you'll have good, when you have good leaders in government, it will be good for you. Uh, now, this must have been hard for them to comprehend because after all, these were their enemies. And basically what Jeremiah says, don't fight against them. Don't fight against them. Don't, don't put up walls. Pray for the city. Make it a better place. Pray for, pray for the leaders. Uh, you know, and and so it, it's it's quite different than what we tend to do. So the the the, uh, the third thing he says is that we're they were to work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Now again, remember this is a dark dark city. Babylon was one of the darkest cities uh, that you could ever describe. There were awful things that were going on. And what does God say to His people who are in this city? He doesn't say build a cocoon. And, and hang in there. No. He says, love the city. Pray for the city. Make it better. Plant gardens. Be good neighbors. Be good workers. Be good citizens. But don't lose your identity. Don't lose your identity. So the question is, how are we to be the best citizens of our earthly city and our heavenly city? You know... Um, Augustine said basically that there are two cities, that there is a heavenly city within the earthly city. And what he was talking about is within any earthly city, there's a heavenly city called his church. And we're to be the city within the city. And we're to influence this city through this city, the the faith community. We'll talk more about that. But the point I want you to see is how are we to engage our city for his kingdom. How do we do that? So I want to give you a few practical steps to take. The first one is serve sacrificially for the common good of the city. Serve sacrificially for the common good of the city. Think about how can I serve this city? Because sometimes we say, well, how can I serve the church? And frankly, the only thing, only the thing I do for the church matters. And I just want to say to you, no, no, no. That's separating the sacred from the sacred, the sacred from the sacred. Secular, and that's not what we're trying to do here. Secularism makes people selfish. Uh, religion makes people self-righteous. But the gospel compels us to turn from our selfishness and 
our self-righteousness to serve others in the same way that Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He gave Himself. He served Himself up on a cross for us. He came into His own and His own received it not. But He served Himself knowing His end. Israel was told to seek the peace and prosperity of the pagan city of Babylon. And we are called as the city, the church, within this city, Dubuque and the surrounding area, to be, to be His church, to serve our city, to love our city, to pray for our city, to make our city a better place. And one of the roles that Hope Church needs to play in this community is we're to make this a better community because we're here, because we know Him. That's what we're called to do. I don't know how that plays out if we're called to do. It means we're going to engage in our, in our world. That we're not going to step back. We're not going to go into a cocoon. But uh, it, also, it also means we don't lose the distinction of the gospel where we basically say, well, it doesn't really matter what we believe. It does matter what we believe. So there's, there's a, you know, ap- applying this is much more difficult than talking about it. The second thing we need to do is we need to think and live in a distinctly Christian manner in all areas of life. One of the things we have to do is we have to stop making this hard distinction between something that's secular and something that's sacred. And, you know, some people have gotten to the place where they say, well, the greatest thing I could ever do is become a pastor or a missionary. And I just say, really? Where, where do you find that in Scripture? Because I don't see it. See, I don't see a distinction between the secular and the sacred. They both matter to God, and they both matter to our community. There is no Sunday-only Christians. You know, it's not that we say, okay, today I'm a Christian on Sunday, but the rest of the week I'm just whoever I am. And we compartmentalize our faith. God never intended us to compartmentalize our faith. That's His whole point of saying to the people, don't compartmentalize who you are. Be good citizens. Be my people in this place. Whatever you do, wherever you go, you must see yourself as an ambassador for Christ, bringing the kingdom of God to earth in human flesh. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassador. God is making his, his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So there is a message. We don't lose the message of the gospel of repentance or coming back to God. But we also have to have a reason for people to want to know about our hope. We, sometimes we speak the words before we, have no, before we have any credibility. Number three, make this faith community a place where love is real and God's future kingdom is being lived out. When people visit our faith community, when they attend the services, when they're part, they get around Hope Church, do they feel loved? Do, do they, are they loved? And, and are we connecting with one another? Are we praying for one another? Are we forgiving one another? Are we loving one another? Are we serving one another? Are we bearing one another's burdens? And again, you can't do that in a big group like this, but is it taking place? Is this a place where you can find love and acceptance by other brothers and sisters in Christ? And you know, why is that important? Because Jesus prayed this would be one of the most powerful signs of our relationship to God, is our love for one another. He said this in John thirteen thirty five: Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Your love for one another. 
Are we making a compelling case? Do we make a compelling case that we belong to Him by the way we treat one another? Should, others should see that. Others should be say, I don't know. I, I've never been to a church where people seem to love and care for one another like they do here. Now again, absolutely no, we're not perfect. Absolutely know that. That's not the point. The point I'm making is this. One of the most powerful demonstrations that we belong to Him, that we're His disciples, is the way we treat one another. How are we doing? Here's one, one other one. Work hard and strive for excellence. Work hard and strive for excellence. It's, it's, the, the day is over, the time is over where Christians can be seen as lazy, can be seen as people who don't keep their word, people is, who are hypocrites, people who basically are Sunday-only Christians. Those days are over. You know, the world is tired of that. They're tired. You know, one of the things that I've said to people, and I just said it in the couple, last couple of weeks, one of the most powerful things you can do as a Christian is this. It's very simple and it's very hard. And I'm delaying because I want you to all hear what I'm going to say because I think it's really important. It may be that the reason that people have rejected Christ is because they've never really met a Christian. They've never met somebody who says, hey, I blew it, I'm sorry, forgive me. They've never acknowledged their failure. They've never uh, really cared about the other person. They've met, you know, and my goal is, my goal is, that when people meet me, they can say, okay, I have a caricature of Christians, but I no longer have that caricature because I've met at least one person who really believes in Christ and really lives that out. And I can't dismiss everyone because I've met someone who is the real deal. Because every time you hear people when they say, oh, I'm not a Christian, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, have they met one person who's not a hypocrite? One person that loves Christ. One person that keeps their word. One person who's a hard worker. One person that forgives. One person that shows love. One person that's willing to sacrifice. One person that's willing to battle. Have they met that person yet? And when they meet that person, they will say, I can no longer reject Christ because I've never met a Christian. We're not making a compelling case. Martin Luther one time said this. He says, uh, uh, he was asked uh, by a shoemaker. He's, the shoemaker said, how can I be a sh- Christian shoemaker? And Martin Luther responded, make the most excellent shoes possible. <laughs> be honest and diligent. Work hard. Strive for excellence in all you do so that others... Give glory to your Father in heaven. Whatever job you have, enter. Let me just say this. This may change the way you enter. Maybe some of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, because uh, everybody to look around and say, oh, really? That's interesting. Um, some of, every one of us has have, have had jobs that are just awful. They're just, either we work for people that are our bosses, they're just, they're just hard to work for. They're jerks, you know, they're, they're insensitive, they're, they're, they're just, it's bad. Or the work situation, the work environment is bad because of people you work with, right? The per- person you work under, the person you work with, or the actual job is kind of like, this isn't really a cool job. It's not what I want to do. And so sometimes you go into that and you go, I'm wasting my time. 
I just want to say before you go into that building, if you work in a building or outside, whatever it is, say, God, I am going to do my very best for you. I work for you. This is my way to worship you. As I, I'm going to deal with difficult people. They may meet my coworkers, but I'm going to treat them with dignity and respect, respect, even though they don't deserve it, because I love you and because you treated me with dignity and respect. I'm going to deal with my boss in a, in a positive way, even though he's very negative and very hard to work for, but I'm going to do it because I'm doing it for you. Not for him, not for the company, but for you. Now, that will change your view of work. And, and the point I want you to see is, Your work is a means of worship. Do your best for the master. Why? Because he gave his best for you. Gave everything he had for you. That would make a difference, right? That that would make a difference if, if Christians began to go to work and work hard and be diligent and honest. Let me give you one more. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Be ready to give an answer. Peter puts it this way. He says, if somebody asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. I love this story. I think Bill Hybels was telling the story about uh, he was down, I think, in the Bahamas, and he likes to sail, and they were uh, out of, he rented a little boat with his wife, and they were talking in uh Somebody invited them to their yacht, their bigger yacht that night for dinner and or something, just a little party. And anyways, he went there and he said, I don't want to stay very long, but I feel like I should go. And he went up and he said hi to everyone. And so he he said he was climbing down, you know, from one, the big boat to his little boat. And he had one foot on, you know, ready on on the boat and one foot on his little boat. And at that moment, the patriarch of the family, an older grandmother said, hey, Bill. What is your, what do you believe about Jesus? And he said, they're going like, really? And essentially he said, at that moment, I was so glad that I had a really short, quick way to express my faith and my hope in Jesus Christ. And I think he got done saying it. She says, oh, that's good. He got his boat and went away. Now, who knows what happened? But Peter says, be ready to, you know, like I said, sometimes people never ask us about our hope because they don't see it in us. They don't see our faith. They don't see our hope. They don't see anything. And they think, you got nothing. But sometimes they'll come and say, you know, you got something I don't have. You have a hope. You have a faith. You have a, a, a belief in God that I don't have. And I, I, I really want to know more about it. Be ready to give it an answer. But I, what I'm saying here is first you need to earn the right to be heard. Give them a track record to consider. Show them life in the kingdom. So again, Augustine said there's a city uh, of God within every city of man. And what he meant was God was at work in every, every human city planning and establishing his alternate city, the church. And our purpose as his people is to renew and restore this human city that we call Dubuque. This city of God, this church, Hope Church, is called to give testimony to a heavenly city, a new kingdom, and a new king. And it all happens by some of the things that we talked about. 
Now, I don't know how that all plays out in your life specifically, but all I know is that people ought to say, wouldn't it be great if one of the greatest things they said was, when they, when they found out, they say, hey, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, where, where do you go to church? They say, Hope Church. Well, that would be good. But what they say, what an amazing God. What an amazing God. You, you, you people that go to Hope Church, you believe there's an amazing God. He, he is doing a work in your hearts, and I see, we see it. We, we understand it. And that's kind of what Jesus was getting at. And this is the last passage I want to look at. Jesus said this, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will not praise you and not praise Hope Church, but praise your Father in heaven. Our goal is for people to see our Father in heaven and give praise to Him. They'll, say, they'll see what's behind our faith, our hope. And when they see what's behind it, they'll say, that's what I want, that's what I need. May God help us to love our city and to make it a better place because we know Jesus and we know Jesus would want that. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, very easy to talk about, very difficult to do. Help us to live out our faith. Help us to be ready to give an answer. But more importantly, help us to put down roots, to do a good job, to love this city, to love uh, the people around us, whether they know you or not. But when they do know you, Father, may we have that, that Christian love of a brother and sister in Christ that you desire. May we pray for this city. Pray for the leaders. May we make it a better place because we are here. May the city within the city, your church, make it a huge difference and impact for your kingdom. And may we people see the light of Christ and praise you. May you get all the praise and honor and thanks as we serve this city. Most of all, Father, thank you for sending Jesus who served us and gave everything for us and was cast out of the city, the city of Jerusalem, and executed outside on a cruel cross. May we impact our city for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.